Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. You are about to hear a session from our recent workshop on healthy sexuality entitled God's Design for Sex. We hope you enjoy it and will check out each episode from the event. For more information about 3SC, visit our website, threestrands.church. So listen, it is my privilege to introduce our speaker today. And um, David shared with the group um, that prayed together before we got started, like, we just we have a story that's full of a fair amount of brokenness and fairly public brokenness. Um, and there's there's just been a lot of hurt and a lot of wrong thinking and wrong choices. And there has also been a whole lot more redemption and rescue and healing and hope. And it is an amazing gift. And so very early in our journey of healing, I met Sue Moore um, at a weekend where I'd gone for counseling because I was a train wreck. (laughs) And so um, I met Sue and she offered to come alongside me. Like we didn't live in the same place or anything, but she said, here's my number. If you need to talk, call me. And I would. I'd call it 5 o'clock in the morning or midnight or 3 o'clock in the afternoon like it didn't matter. And one of the things that I, that I learned in recovery was um, that a true friend is someone who honors your place in the journey. And while she gave me so much hope for what was to come, she never encouraged me to like seek that more than learning what God had for me in the moment. And that was such a gift. And I'm so thankful. Like, you gave me so much perspective that, like, I honestly don't know, guys. Like, God put different individuals in our lives at different points. But, like, each one, like, Sue, without you, I don't know. Like, God just used your truth and your grace toward me to show me what I needed to know at a time when I couldn't have heard it from anyone else. And so I am so thankful that he chose to use you. And she is going to share some great content with you guys this morning. Like I said earlier, um, it might feel a little awkward, but she has a passion. We have a world that struggles to understand the truth about sex and sexuality. And she has studied the word. And she has done lots of study for like the human body and how things work together. And God has given her a message that weaves together beautifully our relationships, our emotions, our thoughts, and our bodies, and the way that God designed us to live full lives together. And so, Sue, I want you to come on up here. We are so thankful that you are here today and excited to hear. That is a humbling. Can I move this over here? Because I want to be able to, can you hear me good? It's like, like a woman to come in and rearrange your furniture, right? Sorry, just throw that in there. Thank you for that. That was a very sweet exchange, this. Can I hug you up here in front of everybody? Yes, I love you. Thank you. All right, so, I got it. Oh, it swivels, too. There's so much to say. And there is a warning, and I'm going to steal this little clip light, like we talked about. And I think I can figure out how to turn it on. Maybe not. I need the brilliance of your pastor. Um, I know that was so difficult, right? 
I have to tell you, um, there are several things that are touched my heart, and this is not in the presentation. And the bad news is that I haven't timed this. Um, I have enough anxiety. I don't need to figure out the clock. But you'll be out of here. Or just leave, you know, whichever. Um, I could talk all day, but we'll put, give breaks to you. Um, first of all, though, I want to give glory to God for this body of believers. I don't know what you're familiar with in your journey in Christ, in the fellowship of the saints, but to come together every Sunday and put up and take down and put up and take down is a sign of true devotion to their Lord and is a very compelling thing to witness. Um, and in addition to that, is that they have asked me to come and speak to you. And a couple of reasons why I think that is important. Um, as I was in worship with you, this topic doesn't get a lot of invites. I've been in ministry for 14 years, and it has been a lot of deer and headlights conversation. I've gone to the front door, I've gone to the side door, I've sometimes dug a hole through the basement, I've tried to get in the, the church, and I have, um, but not to the degree of the problem that we face. And the culture is creating, uh, it, it is hypersexualized, as you know, and it is creating more problematic sexual behaviors every day. And the church has to wake up to the need for this conversation and get over itself get over your bad self, and I would like for you just to think about how special you are and how special you are, David, and Stephanie, and your leadership team, and the volunteers, and all that. So I want you to say to the person next to you, do you know how special you are? Come on now. And across, you're special because you get to hear a message that I believe that God has put together. I'm not the only one talking about such topics, but I'm the one that he has appointed to be here with you. Um, but his, the church is in crisis in the culture because we're denying um, the head in the sand about sexuality. And, and it is an interesting concept to think about God's design for sex, and I have a lot of quips, and I won't go into them about, um, and some sound even disrespectful, but even, I, I am going to say it, it's come to mind. Sometimes Christians believe that God created everything, but Satan created what's between your legs. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And that comes from a perspective that we have adopted from culture. Culture has hijacked and sabotaged and given a counterfeit of sexuality. And so, what your father would like you to know is how he designed it and why he designed it that way. So, there are going to be four workshops. This first one is on God's design for sex, or the whole thing is that way, but this is more uh, design, um, sexual intimacy itself. Uh, then we've got uh, design and dysfunction, and then we've got another workshop on wholeness and brokenness, and then the last workshop on healthy intimacy. 
If you're going to attend all four, um, I would like to honor your time, and I'm going to give two books away. Um, they are on Talking to Your Kids About Sex by Dr. Mark Laser. He is, was, he passed away uh, two years ago, September, uh, the foremost Christian authority on sexual addiction recovery, and I was fortunate enough to come up under his ministry and learn from him and learn the methodology, author the life recovery model. And it's this foundation that my workshop on sexual development has been established. So this is, in addition to other stuff, is, is with it. But these are valuable books, even if you don't have children. And if, if you have some problematic behaviors yourself, this will help you go back to... Um, you know, some interactions within your childhood that may have created um, some circumstances and, and what you can do to make corrective measures. But it's a good start, and I'm giving one way two of those. So I encourage you to come back. There's going to be a lot of content. I'll try not to be a fire hose, but um, and I only stuck with one cup of coffee today, so we're good with that. We are, we've got a good start. Um, you have the postcards that were on your seat. I've done this intentionally or every other seat because I forgot, didn't bring a huge amount, but there are more on the table. Um, the reason why is because um, sometimes people are bashful to come up and ask questions. They're bashful to go over to the table because someone might see you. So I would just encourage you guys to go over to the table even if you're not interested at all because that might encourage someone else. I'll just blend in with them over there. But in case none of that applies to you, at least there's contact information on the back of this postcard. You can reach me. Do you want to check my batteries? I do have extras. Um, so the Lord, I have a verse that may seem to be a little awkward to start with. Um, I don't even need to, to read it per se out of the scriptures because I've memorized it. Um, but I'm going to because it threads through all of the work that we're going to be covering. Um, and it is Genesis 4-7. And the Lord is um, talking to Cain, and you probably are familiar with that story. If not, it's a good one. But I, I love the significance of what God is saying here. He says, if you do well, and another, I'm a word study geek, and so that word well means to be pleasing. Um, so if you do well, will not your countenance, your face, your attitude, your disposition be lifted up? You'll be accepted. Depends on which translation you use. And then he says, if you do not do well, and it stops there, he says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And I love that. That verse was given to me in probably 1999. I come from this, my own female sex and love addiction um, issues, drug addiction, workaholism, some food, a little alcohol. I mean, we cover them all. It's going to be in the material throughout the day. Um, but that was one of the first verses that the Lord has continually brought me back to, and he's brought me back into another season of it, and I'm going even deeper still. Um, but he put it on my heart to share with you, so I am, and so apparently it will, it will come threaded throughout. So, I have made extra big print to try to avoid having to use my glasses, because I just get annoyed with them, but it is what it is, and you get nearly 60, it kind of happens. Um, just want to tell you, before I push go, 
don't ever underestimate what God will do with your story. Don't ever underestimate it. You serve a big God. And if you don't know him as that yet, stay with it. He's really big on challenging you on who you think he is and who you are in him. And he will use your story. He wants you give, to give you boldness to where you will allow him to use your life to declare what was once is no longer and you're headed in this direction. Not perfect, but I am clear sights bullseye on him. And that is for you because the reason why I asked you to say to your neighbor you're special because in my view and what I do, not everybody gets to hear this message. I want them to. He wants them to. But the, the doors haven't been opened just yet. And if you will allow him, he will use this message through you to change the culture and the next generation coming up. God willing, we have that much time. You with me? Okay, I need some head nods and going on. I'm with you, Sue. And, and, and I'm, we got some, you know, I understand why you're quiet, but you're going to have to interact a little bit. Just let me know you're still breathing. Stretch here and there, maybe a giggle. Okay. So, sip of water, and we're on our way. All of that was not even included in whatever thought I time I had, so that, that's on the Lord. Um, so I point it back this way, and it's good? Okay, you just challenged me. I just might do it. Anyway, all right, so in the opening, what I wanted to say to you is that sexual intimacy is a metaphor, and a metaphor is a symbol. It's an emblem. So sexual intimacy is an emblem, a symbol of something. And so what? And a lot of this content's going to be new to most of you about talking about sexuality in such a way. I want to suggest that to understand the richness and the complexity of human sexuality, we have to understand the design and the purpose. We're going to have to go back. We've got about four slides that are going to be digging into some foundational. I got, I'm a big graphic person. I believe, you know, pictures worth, worth a thousand words, and, and I hope in that respect that it does, because uh, I got a thousand words I could give you for it, but a picture will suffice. Um, but we are looking at what is the purpose of human sexuality. So when you think about that, you got a really quick and easy answer, each one of you do, and I'm not sure you're going to feel quite comfortable yet in spitting that out, but maybe later tonight. But the easy answer is, uh, well, God created us male and female, um, we're supposed to get married, have babies, and um, it, sex can be used for good, and it can be used for bad. That's pretty much the easy, easy answer. But I'm here to say to you that sexuality, human sexuality, is more complex than that um, by the design. Even though sexuality is an important part of who we are as humans, sexuality is only a symbol and a metaphor of something so much more profound. And that's what the first half of my conversation with you today is going to be about. There is more to being human than sex. Some of you might argue that to yourself at this moment. They're sure about that? Yeah, I am. Um, yet then we have to ask the question, why is the desire for sexual intimacy so intense? And then why are we hurt so deeply 
by its misuse. Sexual desire points us to our soul's longing to be whole, to be complete, to be fully known by God. I'll say it again. Your sexual desire, our sexual desire, points us to a longing within you so deep that you want to be known. And the best thing we have this side of heaven is the marital sexual union. But that is an emblem in that type of way of you knowing your God so fully and him knowing you fully as well as he already does. Okay. I'm not sure why it's doing that. Or that. I got a blinking going on. Did it do it? Okay. Sweet. I've I've got 3 seconds flashing on here. I have no idea what it means. All right. So this image, you're familiar with it, is the Trinity symbol, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It illustrates to you, God's relational design. The Father is in relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. All of them are in relationship to each other. This is his design. Where This goes, starts here, and it flows through everything. So all of Scripture, all of we're talking about. So in John 17, 22... Maybe not in that direction. Here we go. I don't know how well that you can see that. I'm going to have to shift just a tad so I can see that better and you. So in John 17, 22, it reads, The glory that you have given to me, this is Jesus speaking, love chapter 17, actually 15, 16, 17 of John. He says, The glory that you have given to me, Father, I have given to them, and he's talking about the disciples at this point, and then later you and I. He said, the glory that you have given to me, Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now I'm going to camp for a little bit on the word glory. You see the pull down there. It says maybe you do or don't. It's opinion and value. Um, I had also the opportunity to study up under um, Spiro Sodiates, actually a program that he put together. He was a, a native Greek theologian, and his materials are excellent because of his um, being a, able to um, give in definitions to a real native Greek language, and it made things come alive to me in the scriptures. And so I'm going to... Um, Camp out on this for just a second because it's important for you and I to understand this word glory because if we didn't talk about it too much, you might be thinking, and I don't know, the Old Testament word glory is, is more of radiance and splendor and wealth and majesty and honor and weightiness, which is the definition of glory. And in the New Testament, what's being used here and throughout when Jesus is talking is doxa. If you've grown up in some more... Um, um, Orthodox type of church, the 
praise God, the doxologies, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him, all creatures here below, praise him. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's where the doxology comes from. But in its meaning, glory does mean to have, you know, an appearance uh, to be thought of, and that is in connection to the Old Testament. But it is to mean, and this is worthy of note-taking, and I hope you do because there's a lot of stuff coming along, but it's recognition and reputation, okay? So the glory there, meaning recognition and reputation, Father, that you have given to me, Jesus, I have given to them, the recognition and the reputation that they may be one just as we are one, this wholeness, okay? There is a definition. When it comes to glory, you, we need to understand that there is a glory of man, and this is something from Spiros. He says, the glory of man, Europe, this is you and me, is human opinion. It is shifty, uncertain, and often based on error, and its pursuit for the glory of man is, for its own safety, is untrustworthy. Then he goes on to say, but there is the glory of God, which must be absolutely true and changeless. God's opinion marks the true value of things as they appear to the eternal mind of God. And God's favorable opinion is true glory. This kind of connects with one of the songs that you all are singing. It will connect with all of our work later on. But what God pretty much the, the slang of it is, what God said is final. That's the way he sees it from the, the kingdom perspective. And when we are in pursuit of relationship with God, we have to bend the knee to his opinion stands over mine. The way I see something versus the way he sees something. So we're laying that ground, that foundation first. So in addition to the, all of that is the, that we are one even as they are one, that we are one with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are in unity. They are in a common unity because they are agreement on everything. They're in agreement. So you and I have to be in an agreement with their agreement. And that common unity is a community. Kind of fun play there in word. And they're in a common union. They're united in that union, in that common union. Scripture tells us that we are made in his image. So I'm checking to see. Because it's a slow pull. Now, there you go. See that little tiny triad there? That's us. Okay, and the word yada, you probably can't see it really there very well, but that's another word to write out. That is a Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about it here for a second. So you and I are made in God's image. Um, so what is God's image? On a side note, um, worthy of another workshop, but there's a ton to define. You can nail that down. It's not some out there somewhere. You see the expressions of his image in the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. You see his character throughout Scripture in the faithfulness, the truthfulness. You can look at Exodus uh, 34, 5 through 7, I believe it is, compassion and gracious, loving, full of loving kindness and truth, just, that kind of thing. So you can nail down his character 
and what he is saying here, and you're made in that image, is that is you. So it's not some vague, what does God make me in his image? Yes, bodysuit is our physical representation of God, the Godhead, in the natural. So kind of get used to yourself. The way he wants to flow through you is with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to walk this out with those characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit and all that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control, which is probably the one that ought to be at the top in my personal opinion. But the light and love and all of that. So just to kind of nail the image part, the word yada, one of my favorites, it is used so much through scripture. Um, Again, Hebrew word, Strong's Concordance, 3045, and it is to know and become intimately known. Yada. Now, you've probably even heard some slang in the Jewish of the yada, 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 you know. That's a I know, I know, I know kind of idea. Very flippant of actually what it means is to know fully, experientially, and fully known. goes both ways. It's relational. Again, that's who the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are. So you're made in his image. Jeremiah 1.5, another good scripture for you to write down. God is talking to Jeremiah. Good old conversation. And he says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I yada you. I intimately knew you. There's a great conversation there because that's before time. You know, and, and it doesn't stop with Jeremiah. That's you and I. Before the foundation of the world, he knew us. He had that intimate relationship with us, and that is what the heart craving is to get back into that. That's what your soul is longing for, that yada, to get back into that relationship. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 is... Um, if you are going to boast in anything, this is where if the don't let not the rich man boast in his riches, the strong man his strength, and the wise man wisdom. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and yada me. Intimately knowing experience. Are you getting at the depth of this? interaction relationally that the Father is putting out there and that he wants from you and that mirrors the relationship that they have. Are you following me? Just give me some, you got it? Okay. That experientially known is the call of our hearts right now, and that's being made in his image. Now, I want you to think about something. He tells us also, too, that his perfect love, it's going to be symbolized by a heart hopefully coming up. There we go. Boom. That symbol, as you see it throughout all of my work, represents the wholeness. When I do this and the heart with the Trinity, that's fullness and wholeness. So that perfect love, 1 John 4, 18, casts out all fear. That's what we're talking about. In this, this is the whole, complete, lacking in nothing, and expressing fullness. That's you and me in relationship with the Godhead. 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, write down Genesis 4. Genesis 4 talks about Adam and Eve and this word yada. Adam knew Eve and conceived a man-child. Adam yada Eve and conceived a man-child. The very same word that the Father used throughout Scripture, and there's so many places, and I love it. You can go to um, Proverbs 3, uh, what is it, verses 4 through 6, and um, we read it as, I believe this is verse 6, that in all your ways acknowledge him. It's in all your ways yada him. Um, we've got be still and know that I am God. Be still and yada God. It's just really cool when you start looking at it. So I'm hoping if nothing else you take away is this fact that God really wants this intimate relationship with you. And just by interesting fact, it's the same word that he uses for sexual relations between man and wife. Male and female. Adam, yada, Eve, and conceived a man-child. That's significant and enough for you to camp on for a very long time and chew. And I would highly recommend that you pass this on to other people because we need to address, well, what does he mean? Because doesn't it kind of change a few things? If the same word for sex is the word God wants us to have a relationship with him? Tell me that doesn't cause you to go, huh, wonder what your conversation is going to be like for lunch. So this is where the one flesh union is the metaphor and the emblem of covenant love. Covenant love, you know about this, I do believe, is that promise, that unconditional love of the Father to us as his beloved and the covenant love that is the establishment of the, the marriage between husband and wife. Now Paul speaks of this mystery in Ephesians 5, in the New Testament, we've been talking Old Testament on this word yada, but it's the same visual image that he's using in Ephesians 5 about this mystery of Christ and his bride. It's unmistakable. It's there. So we have to wrap our heads around it, and I think it's a beautiful place to start conversations. And if nothing else, I want my ministry to be a conversation starter. Yeah? All right. This visual attempts to illustrate what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that you are, and I are spirit, soul, and body. And he prays, that, he prays that we are preserved complete without blame and alignment with the mind of Christ, which is a huge significance in this whole walking out this earth, earth suit kind of experience. Um, and I'm going to emphasize here uh, the functions of these in a very generalized way. Um, but we'll start with the body. Pointed maybe in, there we go. You're right, it kind of works in whatever direction I point it. So you've got, um, in respect to the body, you see the blue, uh, the truth over spirit, perception over soul, and experiences over body. Um, the body underneath it, you've got maybe too small for you to see there, but it's data intake. 
This is your senses, your five senses. What you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, and what you touch. This is how you have been designed to take in your experiences in this world, is through your senses. And so this, when you're looking at this imagery, and I use this a lot through all of my, my courses that I'm teaching, is that this realm, if you will, the body in the natural carnal world is responsible for you taking in your experiences as a whole. Okay, so I'm building on this. Second, you have the soul, the perception, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Interestingly, these two working together is that you use your mind, will, and emotions to interpret your experiences in the natural. That's, the, that's what the perception's about. And then lastly, you have the spirit. Life breath, by definition. And the spirit gives you and I the ability to think of and communicate with God. Okay? That's why we need, the, we need to invite the spirit into us so he can pour through and use this flesh suit to serve his kingdom purposes here. Because without it, you just get Sue more, and that ain't pretty. It's a bunch of yada yada. You need him to come through. And then with that is me bending my knee and being in agreement with the way God sees things. That's what that surrendered heart is all about. We'll, we'll get into this more as we build. The thing about under the truth, um, just by definition, it's good to know that that word means unveiled reality. What significance that is, is that right now, the kingdom is here. It's not veiled. You have to see with his eyes to see it. But it is not veiled to you. The kingdom can, you can have that perception. Um, and I've covered the rest of those. Under the spirit here, it's worthy to note that this is the part that God is for you. He is for your personhood, because before he formed you in the womb, he knew you. He is for your position, that is, he desires to have you... Uh, reconciled and redeemed so he can pour through you, so your position in the kingdom with him, and your purpose, the design that he has placed you in the place and time with the family and the community that you're in. There's a, there's a need for you to act alive, get the spirit on and let him pour through and, and, and step away from some stuff that's been shackling you. I find this fascinating. We're starting to segue into, um, this is, I titled this one, Design for Safety. Um, we are designed, you see it replete in scripture, that you, that the, his love casts out fear. He's asking you to fear not. Um, it, it is one, uh, you can't, may not be able to see it really well at the bottom, but that statement says, the nervous system's expectation is a metaphor for safety, and that's science lingo from Stephen Porges. He's a neuroscientist, and 
worthy of following. But what he, in, in effect, is saying in the statement is that your body, your mind, and your will and emotions, and your spirit is always looking for safety. And I could give you tons of information about that just in conversation alone. But I find that fascinating because it correlates everything with the scriptures of God's saying, come to me, I got you. Like that mother hen brooding over chicks. I got you. This perfect love that casts out fear. I got you. The interesting thing that science confirms scripture and that um, in so many ways, and here's just one in my view, is that the parasympathetic nervous system, our nervous system that runs up and down our our body and the spine, um, but we have a branch of it um, that when, it's called the ventral vagal branch, it's in charge of the front of the face, uh, ears and heart and the diaphragm and the lungs. And a child, when it's born, the, the, the neurons are not myelinated yet, and it, the function of it isn't working well until, and then, when a child has attunement with its caregiver. So you were designed to have such attention when you were raised up that you caught the eye of your parents and caregivers, and, and, and then you were able to be soothed when you were rattled, whether it was hungry or need your diapers changed or fearful because of something, that you would be in attunement with your caregiver that they see you, they would soothe you, that you would feel safe, and you would be secure in the relationship. Those are science words. To me, it's scripture. It's how God designed us. He designed us to be able to be attuned with people that say, I see you, soothe you, comfort you, and all of that. I find this actually a correlation with recovery work. Because in the support groups of recovery, you can this transfers into your, your life groups, your, your study groups within the church. People want, they will become known to you, that intimacy, when you have seen them, when they feel seen, and they feel soothed and safe and secure in that relationship. So this, again, that that model moves on and on and on. So that baby begins its search for safety, and it develops patterns for that search. Again, going back to the perfect love that casts out fear and the being seen, soothed, safe, and secure. So sexual intimacy is designed for safety. Start building a case and and could go long on this, but I'll just start with this. Um, You see, we pulled down safety under love, and over there under fear, you may or may not be able to read it, um, but I also want you to see that this, uh, this little guy right up here, not so little, that's the adversary. He's the one who wants to eat your lunch all the time, every day, 24-7. Scripture says so. Um, but fear, the word study for it is to shrink back in an anticipation of harm. His game is to put your muzzle on it. And to have you just step back, not be bold and show up to that service they're talking about sex stuff, or not come to that workshop kind of thing, just stepping back to shrink back. 
Well, I thought I clicked, and we'll see if I've either gone too far. Oh, there they are. They're just slow. All right, above the word love are four Greek words for love. Um, starting at the top is storge. Um, and the point that I'm getting to is about eros and agape love, but storge is an affection between the, the humblest love. It's known between the parent to offspring. And phileo, you know that is the brotherly love. It's the common interest love. You, you got something in common. You may go shooting together out the sports club, or you might go knitting or whatever. I don't know. Those are very outdated kind of, but you get my point. You have a common interest, a dear friend kind of thing. Eros is not mentioned in scripture uh, as the word eros. However, it is significantly described in the Song of Solomon. But eros is uh, pretty much, in my view, eros is what's being taught and shied away from in the body of Christ in our culture. We're not talking as much about the agape, um, the foundation of agape that eros has to be built on. So the, the eros is the romantic and sexual love um, and comes from the Greek goddess, actually, um, Artemis and a bunch of different concepts. But like I mentioned, the erotic passion is shown in scripture. You can see it in Song of Solomon um, in that regard. But here's my point is that eros is satisfied fully, I'm going to click it for this, when proper boundaries have been put in place and are established on the security of agape love. And agape love indicates the direction of the will. It's, it's the Father's love for you, not giving you what you want, but what you need. Um, it's important to know that this safety, when eros, erotic passion, and we have it, that's the way God has wired us. We have erotic passion. We desire to be desired. That is not anything to be ashamed of. It's a part of the wiring and the way God made us. It's how we function with that desire and what limitations and boundaries that we operate with that desire because it doesn't op operate perfectly by itself. Eros by itself is consuming and insatiable and not satisfying. If you will build eros on top of agape, agape is looking out for God's best interest within you and will even help you protect boundaries and limitations that will help you maintain what God's calling you to have and be in regard to passion. And so that agape provides the safety and the security and our ability, and this is... So hang with this statement, because this is where we're going when it goes into dysfunction, or the lack of it. So this eros angape gives us the ability to be at rest in the moment, even when it comes to the relationship with you in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or if we're talking about the marital one flesh union. Eros built on agape allows you to relax 
knowing this person is out for your best interest as God sees it. So much truth in that statement. Now, now we switch over into the neurobiology a bit. I think I got four slides of this. I have no idea my time. Um, but we're. So you and I are wired for anticipation. We kind of alluded to that with that the nervous system is seeking safety. Okay? It's anticipating something. It's looking for safety predominantly, but depending if that child or that person has had good attunement and connection, it may not be looking, it wants safety, but it may be looking for you to squash it, to smack it, depending on experiences. We'll go into that. But we are wired for anticipation. We expect good or we expect bad, that anticipation of harm that we were talking about. That's why the scriptures are all about having you pray in the good, look for the good, because we are created to look for that good. Science confirms scripture in this statement because we seek to find. We are, Dr. Daniel Siegel, um, he's another neuroscientist, he says that the brain is the anticipation machine and that we are wired to pursue and we're wired to seek, but that we are also wired to find. We are wired for reward for that pursuit. I mean, something, because if you don't get that thing you're looking for, you get kind of cranky. Don't tell me you don't. You do, because you're wired to seek and to find. And you see that even in scripture, and he's talking about seeking and finding him, the Father. So we're wired to, for reward, to obtain, to consummate the search, or to complete or satisfy that pursuit. This is true of all of our appetites, including our desire to rest in the fullness of God, to rest in the presence of God. Now, we're going to correlate this all the way through today. Now, there are two basics. Um, there are a couple of basics, and here are two. There are two types of blame, brain, brain, okay, brain pleasure. Uh, there are two separate systems in the brain. One is exciting pleasure, and the other is satisfying pleasure. Now, I want to pause and say on my website, you can find the foundation of all of this content um, in some form. I have the workshops, yes, too, that you can sign up for. But there are about 30 videos that are on the website. If you go to the pull down, our work, and you'll see uh, training videos, go there. And you will see all of the neurobiology stuff. So you've got the exciting pleasure and satisfying pleasure. Now, the exciting system it relates to the appetite um, or the pursuit pleasure, okay? Going after something from actually, let's say in this instance, visualizing sex or a good meal because they are both wired very similarly in the brain. Think about that at Thanksgiving Day. You know, you want that food. That food done yet because you're anticipating. You want 
that meal and you want it now. This is a largely dopamine-related pursuit, and that dopamine provides the tension because it is it's, um, it actually mediates, it connects that drive of pursuit with its attended result. And so the dopamine is going, you're going to get there, right? We're getting that. We're, we're going towards it, right? The second has to do, oh, it went slow. Okay, that's the appetite. We just talked about that. Okay. And then the satisfying pleasure has to do with the consummation, the consuming it, whatever it is, the turkey dinner, the marital sexual union, um, checking off something off a list to do that you've done. Um, all of that is a part of the consummation. You've satisfied it. Don't tell me that you haven't received that type of a, oh, got that done. I feel some pleasure because I can check it off the list. There's a, a lot to be said there. There's a peaceful, euphoric bliss. When it comes to sex and food, um, as well as the others of being able to check it off the list. Um, this is a calming and soothing pleasure. Um, it is um, a very fulfilling, what we call sati satiation, where one is gratified entirely. Okay? Can't get much better than that, gratified entirely. Matter of fact, it bears to mention that the word joy in Scripture, one of the synonyms for joy is being gratified entirely some connection about how good your God is. Anyway, it's a peaceful, euphoric bliss when it comes to uh, the design of sex. All right. We're talking about neurobiological sex now. Um, I have three clicks that I'm going to read to you off the screen, which you probably can't see really well. It says, the first part says, the endorphin rush manufactured at the time of release is 200% over the baseline for both morphine or heroin. Okay. So what it's saying is that euphoric bliss um, after or at orgasm, two worst words I use are orgasm and masturbation. Other than that, you're going to be fine. You haven't died. You'll be cool. Just breathe. Okay. So the endorphin rush manufactured in the brain at the time of orgasm is 200% over the baseline for morphine or heroin. And I like to say, let's say at my shoulder level, this is um, the baseline, okay? And then uh, let's say that 100% over the baseline is the top of my head and of morphine or heroin. And, and who knows how powerful, morphine and heroin are pretty powerful, right? I mean, we have some serious problems in our communities over the opiates, correct? All right, so here's Baseline, here's 100%, 200%. The orgasm that the Father, God, Son, and Spirit have created for humanity is 200% over the baseline of morphine or heroin. And there are other neurochemicals that we have not studied yet that could even top that. Okay? This is the highest sensory reward for anything in life. I don't care how much you like hunting, fishing, knitting, crochet, cooking, fill in the blank. This is the highest neurobiological reward for anything in life. And whatever you are viewing at the time 
is captured and locked in by the body's use of the adrenal gland. It's, I'll just go ahead and click it. This event is particularly constructive in the developing of marital relationships. As the prefrontal cortex of the brain is like wet cement, and it is forging neurological pathways that are going to remain developed, affecting future decisions. This slide here, um, and, and another, is telling you that by design, the Godhead made sure that the marital sexual one flesh union was the highest sensory reward known to mankind. It is such intense pleasure. Now, that is a reality as a sister in, in the faith with you that you just have to get a grip on. We have to be able to go, wow, he, he could have not done that, but he did. Hang with me. And it's the highest sensory reward for anything in life, and it's constructive because it's the visual to see your spouse as the one and only, this makes a strong case for it. Because, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but it's okay here. I, I do want to point out a couple of things um, before I do get ahead of myself. I like being able to walk over to here. Okay, so this rush or high, or the buzz, this red line that goes up to the yellow blinking light, that's your nucleus accumbens. It's the one that has all the pleasure stuff going on when, when anything happens, but right now we're talking about the sexual orgasm. So that's what's going, woohoo, yay, buddy, having a good time. And then we've got this craving going on, and that red little blinking light right there is your amygdala. Funny thing about the amygdala in the limbic system, kind of good and bad the way it was designed, is that it captures every, it's a recording, even within utero. Science has shown us that babies, when they're in utero from um, domestic violence um, mothers who are witnessing domestic violence, they're the fetus, its level of cortisol is so much higher um, because of that domestic violence. And it's recorded in that fetus, its limbic system, and so when it's born, it has a reaction to stimuli as versus threatening versus, we were talking about early, earlier, the neuroception of safety, that seeing, wanting to be safe, it's already on alert. So your limbic system, your amygdala specifically, is recording everything unconsciously. And why recovery is such a big deal is because we're having to go back and pull up lies, speak truth to them kind of thing. Um, so the craving this is your amygdala is now going, by golly, that felt good. I would like to do that again. And the design of that is why God is wanting to keep our parameters on our spouse, the one and only is because when our beloved in the wedding night, when all of that anticipation has been going on, and you want to be with your one and only, and you get to visually see your one and only in, in the flesh in the, for the first time, it is burned into your neural pathways, and now you recall and desire the one and only. And every time you think of the one and only, it goes back to the, yeah, 
I want to do that again. Science even proves this. This is probably um, one of my favorite connections, and you will be happy to know that we have two, this slide and another, and we'll be done. I have no idea on time. But you're staying here. I haven't seen anybody get up, so we must be doing pretty good. So I call this the four-part decrease. Four parts of your brain decrease in activity during orgasm. Now, I read this um, online, and I was intrigued, so I took the bait, and I read it, the article, and then I went, wow, wow. Okay, so I'll share with you instead of sitting here talking about it. So as you can imagine, it's hard to study what's happening in the brain during orgasm. Um, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, it's in here, go straight in, where the green arrow maybe might come up. Maybe. There he goes. That's in the area of your limbic system, uh, too. But that green arrow is pointing to the ventral stratum. And it's active in men and women. And we expected that because it's uh, connected to the studies of the nucleus acumens and, and the higher the buzz that we were just talking about. So it's very much involved in that. It just went away, didn't it? Oh, I guess it's supposed to. All right, so I found this fascinating because of these four parts that decrease. And so in order for you to understand or even appreciate what I'm talking about, the four parts of the brain that decrease, I'm going to talk to you about what they do when they're engaged. Okay? Fair to say. So we've got... The ventral medial prefrontal cortex is its job is to think about yourself and your fears. Okay? It's online going, yep, I'm thinking about me. I'm self-absorbed and I'm thinking about all the things I'm ever fearful about. Hello. And then we've got the anterior cingulate, and its job is to monitor for mistakes. Mm. Anybody got one of those going on in their brain? I find this fascinating because actually it's, if, if, if you are monitoring for mistakes, then you've got to have a standard that you're measuring against, right, to order to consider it a mistake. So that's a kind of sneaking something in there for you. And then you've got the ends of the, wow, it is so slay. You have the ends of the temporal lobes, which are about right here. And it, its job is to organize and plan and it's based on your knowledge of the world, okay? And there you are. And then lastly, you've got the parahippocampus, and it recognizes external environments, scenes, and places. In other words, spatial recognition. So, what could a drop in these four areas mean in regard to the sexual orgasm? It means that the person is in a state without fear, without thought of themselves or future plans, 
they're present in the moment, in that moment. They're not thinking about anything in particular. And they are in a state that the very boundaries that separate them from their life have disappeared. This is the pattern of deactivation that in the brain state is a purely transcendent experience of pleasure. This came from a secular author. The book it came from is The Aesthetic Brain on John Jetterjee. So this is the highest sensory reward for anything in life. You've got it 200% over the baseline of morphine or heroin and then other neurotransmitters we've not studied yet. And at the point it, it, is, it, it builds in the neural pathway a desire and a craving to do it again with your spouse because that's the way God has designed it. And then in that moment you have no fear, no comparison, no planning, and it's like transcendence, fully present in the moment. Now, so we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ in the one flesh union whom are knowing and becoming known to their spouse who have guarded their eyes, who have guarded their heart, who have enjoyed the coupling. This is a design, okay? For some reason, I don't know. I might have misshuffled my pages, but I'm gonna, I know this where I'm going with it. Obviously, there's the yada. There we go. In Genesis 15, 1, God is speaking to Abram. He says, I am your shield. Remember that protective, that safety thing? I am your shield. And the New King James translation is, your very great reward. I, the Father God, am your shield and your very great reward. I'm bringing you to a parallel here. If scripture says, and it does, that God wants to intimately know you, to yada you, be one with you, that you are whole, complete, and lacking in nothing, and that he has shown us in science and it's validated is the highest reward, the highest neurobiological reward for anything in life. That's, that's this one, one flesh marital sexual union. If, we, if I could have put it over here, it's in this little round sphere, right? And he says in his word that it mirrors, it's an emblem of this, his relationship with you. 
that he wants and there's a longing in your soul to have that knowing and that fully known, that rest and that peace, if this is the highest neurobiological reward for anything in life, then what does that say about this? The experience with God has to be the highest reward of all existence. This is the, that perfect love that casts out fear. That's you being in the presence. Got music cued when it's time to go, right? That's good. That means I'm right on because we're right there. I love that. Lord, you're good. It's good music, too. All right, so here's where I'm going with this. Now, we're going to start next session on the design of spousal recall. And then we're going to go into dysfunction, what happens. It's happened for all of us. Um, I know where my notes are missing, and they're probably back there. Maybe I'll open it with it. The parallel is, is your, the highest enjoyment of the one flesh union is when you are without fear. When we are seeking to satisfy things in our own power, there is an anticipation of harm that has precluded that because we're not believing in the fullness and the satiation of God to satisfy us. So we're going to step out of design and manage that in my own power. And that by itself is an indication that there's fear. So there's number one. Then by design, we are perfected and completed in unity, in agreement. I'm agreeing with everything he says. Even when I'm really not, ha I'm having a hard time walking it out. But you said it. So Lord, I want to renew my mind. I, I'm wanting to walk this out. The come to me... Um, Instead of being in a, in a planning mode, we're reposed, at rest. We're at peace. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. It's Exodus 14, 14. And then lastly, what Jesus is saying in the John 17 is, where I am, you may be also. That's this transcendence. When I was trained for my certification, uh, I cannot find the documentation for this, so that I, I, I've got no data. If you find it, please give it to me. Um, but I was taught and told that worship fires in the same place in my brain as a sexual orgasm. You know what? That makes sense to me because of that. When I'm in worship, I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about him. You know, self-consciousness is the enemy of worship when I am thinking about me because you're looking at me. And, I, you know, it just messes that all up. But think about it. In worship, there's no fear. You got me, Papa. I am smack dab in the middle of you and your perfect love. I've got, a, I've got a prop I'm walking over to, and we're going to be done. And then I'm not measuring myself up against you in your life. I'm going to build on this. You just need speakers that make themselves look goofy, right? So you remember them? 
I've tried to give imagery and I build on this, but this is the perfect love of God. Okay? This is me in him. Okay? And his perfect love in here casts out all fear. It stands out there. And then perfected in unity, I'm in agreement. And then I am not, I, I, I am at rest in here because he's fighting my battles for me. He defends me. And then lastly, I can agree that I'm with him and he's with me wherever I go. I can go into those places that are threatening to me. I can go into those environments that challenge who I am and I carry him with me. Now, that builds on some of the remaining content, but that is God's design for sex. I don't know if that's disappointed you. There's no really graphics that you can share other than what has been created to share with you. But he's fantastic. You know, God is all, he's pro-joy. He's not kill-joy. We've created him into a kill-joy. But what I want you to hear and see is when it comes to the sexual union, there is a reason why he has asked you, especially young people, parents raising up children, there is a reason why he has asked you to guard your eyes and your ears and your heart and your experiences because they are imprinted in your limbic system and they remain with you and you start pinging off of your agreement with them until you bring them up and say, wow, where'd that come from? Is that true or is that a lie? His design is perfect and it's very enjoyable. And if you think, and it is, sex as a married husband and wife is enjoyable. Become fully known. No secrets. Share that space. And allow him to come in and be present. It will take your relationship to another level. And if you're single, I hope you come or if you've had dysfunction, problematic behaviors, I've been there. He redeems and restores, but it's helpful to know that there is a way to move forward with this design in today's culture. It is asking a lot. It is complex, and it is significantly important. It's holiness. It's holiness, and the def definition of holiness is to be set apart. That's why it's different. I'm here to encourage you. If you think our world tells you that sex is satisfying, it's like cold pizza. You can eat it. Hold out for what God has for you, because there you can rest in the peace of being known with your spouse and with a Godhead. And he will move. And he will replicate. I better stop there. I will never stop. It's a good place to bring the... All right. Thank you for listening. I do plead with you to come tonight. Um, that was just the tip of the iceberg.